Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, we talk to Dr. Patrick Schreiner. Patrick teaches at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. We talk today about the theology of the ascension and why the ascension is crucial for understanding the person and work of Christ. We also talk about the theology of the book of Acts. And of course, we talk a little bit sports ball as well. So I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Patrick. Church Grammar is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Go to csbible.com to find out more about that English translation and all of the study Bibles and resources that they're providing. And now, my conversation with Patrick. But first, no big deal. I'm joined by the return of uh, Shriner the Younger, Patrick Shriner, fresh off your move from Midwestern Seminary. So how's your first, uh, what is this, your third day in Kansas City? That's right. It's going well. We're, we're learning the area and we're staying on campus here a little bit. And it's been great being here. Met a few faculty members even today for the first time. I kind of stepped on campus and said hi to people. So I'm in the studio here uh, in Kansas City and it's great. They have a great setup here. Yep. So you are, um, you are. We just uh, cut a whole first uh, part of this podcast that that may end up making it into the final cut um, when you Ron Swanson me and call me by the wrong name. So. <laughs> That's right. I love coming on podcasts where I just call people by wrong names the whole time. <laughs> I, I wouldn't let that stand. I'm not letting it uh, be recorded. Well, we can mention it in passing, but it will be lost to the. Uh, it'll be lost to history because that was a jerk move on your part. <laughs> I just call everyone on podcast Steve. Like, hey, Steve, <laughs> thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, thanks for uh, three days into Kansas City uh, jumping on Church Grammar, even though I know there's a hundred other things you could be doing. So It's my second favorite podcast, you know, so um, I love it. <laughs> you know what my first one is, Behind, right? Uh, well, your now defunct one, or is it another one? Is it on yeah. script? You okay. can't even say the name, can you, on this uh, podcast? Uh, uh, no, I can't say it. You forgot. Behind hold on, hold food on. Trucks and Babylon. Food, food trucks in Babylon. Yeah, I got there it. There you go. Yep. Yeah. Uh, usually, people say on script is their favorite, so that's you know that's usually that's the bar that's really been set for me. So. That's true. It it it. But you know the the hosts of food trucks is just great. I it is, it's being being passed on to Western Seminary, so I'm done with that now. But um, I enjoyed yeah. it as it uh, came. It was really fun to do. Well, I appreciate Todd Miles, but I'm not sure that uh, I'm not sure that any anything any institution any podcast can can survive without uh, the great Patrick Schreiner. <laughs> no, I think it's going to soar to new heights with Todd Miles. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk. Uh, I want to talk first about the return of the NBA. Uh, now that you have moved from Portland, are you still going to be a Blazers fan? Yeah, I'm still going to be a Blazers fan. There's no team to cheer for here. So we have the Chiefs, Fair. right? We have uh, the Kansas City Royals, which I'm excited about. And then they have a soccer team here, Emma soccer team, which I can't remember the name of right now. But um, there's no team to cheer for. So I'm, I'm going to stick with the Portland Trailblazers. My two teams in the NBA that I really like are the Minnesota Timberwolves, and because I grew up in Minnesota, and Kevin Garnett was kind of the guy I grew up with watching NBA and then Portland Trailblazers now because Damian Lillard. And they're at the bottom of the Western Conference, though, so they're, it's going to yeah. be tough. There's a lot of good teams in front of them, and they have Mello, and Mello is usually <laughs> the death of every team. It's a fair point, yeah. Somehow, uh, somehow the Blazers went from the Western Conference Finals to fighting for a final playoff spot, and the only difference is Mello. 
Mello. That's uh, there's a few other differences, but yes, th- they've been struggling this year. So it was a little hard to keep up with them. Number one, they started out pretty bad, and then COVID hit, and so I, I feel like I'm a little bit out of the loop, just trying to get other things in line. But it's coming back on in a few. Is it a few days here now? Yeah, the scrimmages have started at the time of this recording, so it'll be it'll be back on. So you can jump back on. Just make me a promise, okay? Don't uh, now Maybe. that you're depends no, no, what you're going to ask. You will make this promise. <laughs> okay. Um, now that you're in Kansas City, you can. You're a Vikings fan. You can't all of a sudden become a Chiefs fan. You have to stick with your team. Well, the Vikings will be my first love, but I I am free in Christ to cheer for the Chiefs as my second team. But if they ever play together, I will be very clear who I'm cheering for. Kirk Cousins over Pat Mahomes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you, now if you start making the case, the case that Kirk uh, Cousins is a better quarterback, then I'll say, okay, maybe we've gone. Maybe you've gone a little too far. It's funny with Kirk. I love Kirk, uh, and everyone talks about how his stats are so good, but um, there's also something in sports called the eye test, and the eye <laughs> test doesn't do as well with Kirk, although I love him. He, he, his stats are, were actually amazing last year. They were really good, but um, yeah, so, sometimes I wonder how far they're going to go with that. Well, every time uh, somebody questions him, he just yells, you like that. He's a great guy. If you watch him on um, like post-game things he's such a team player though he like if he made a really bad mistake or if, if he didn't make a mistake in the game uh but other players did he's always like man it was a team effort i should have played harder and yeah. i should have done better like he never uh throws anybody under the bus so he's he's really honorable and i've heard i've heard he's a cr- good christian guy uh, randy alcorn actually who is in portland as well um disciples him and a bunch of quarterbacks as well so yeah. he said he's really consistent in terms of coming to bible studies and logging in now to watch church and things like that. Yeah. So um, I heard he's just a great guy. Well, one could surmise that part of the reason why he's used to taking the blame is because he's so used to taking the blame. You know, one might surmise. <laughs> a lot of practice there. All right. Quit hating on Kirk Cousins. Uh, but Pat fine. Mahomes is pretty good. So he's my yeah. now my favorite quarterback. You said I can do that, right? He's my favorite quarterback, it's, Pat it's Mahomes. Look, yeah. You are free in Christ. You're not just free in public shaming. You you're not going to get away with that. So. All right, well, the people are here for the theology, not the sports. Although I did, uh, Matt Emerson and I recently did the Patristics uh, Fantasy Draft. I listened to that. It was one of the most popular things I've ever done. So I think there's more secret sports ball nerds out there than we get credit for. So, Or maybe there's more secret lovers of the Patristics than you, mm. we all realize, right? Mm. Is th- that was your most popular episode? Is that what you're saying? Uh, one of, yeah. It's, yeah. it's one of the fastest. I mean, it's, it's definitely gotten the most immediate feedback of, of one that I've done, so... We can uh, talk sports I, the whole time then. That's fine. I keep, man, look, I told, I've told i told several people this. I sometimes just want to turn this into a sports podcast and then just see how many, if I lose or gain more audience over like a three-month period. Because sometimes right. I just want to, that's all I want to do. So. <laughs> Brandon Smith, uh, professor of theology, coming at you with um, some sports knowledge. Spicy sports takes. So many. <laughs> so many hot takes. That's the problem is I have too many sports hot takes. That's the problem. I have enough theology yeah. hot takes as it is. And uh, COVID would have really hurt your business there because there's sure. nothing to talk about. Although sure. Bill Simmons ended up producing more podcasts in COVID than even before. I'm not sure how yeah. he did that. But. And sold and sold his company to Spotify for like $250 million. <laughs> That's so. right. I'm definitely in the wrong business for that. That's the problem. Those are your life goals. Yeah, life goals to sell this to uh, some great Christian media conglomerate for two hundred fifty million dollars. That's my. Goal. They'll buy Joe Rogan, Bill Simmons, and then <laughs> Church Grammar. 
I mean, if they know it's good for them. Exactly. Yeah, that's what the people want. All right. Well, let's talk about uh, two things I want to talk about today. Your Ascension book, actually, technically, released today at the time we're recording this, it'll be a little bit before this. Um, but you were kind enough to send me uh, an advanced copy. And I loved in your um, dedication to your kids, you said, maybe this is short enough that you will read this someday, which I thought was awesome. Um, I mean, it is a very small, it's in that snapshot series, which is great. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, it's a book on the Ascension. On the one hand, you know, uh, everybody that writes a book about a neglected topic says it's a neglected topic, and your tagline says it's neglected. Um, so, uh, but I feel like you could have written like 400 pages if it was really that neglected. You know, there's a lot you could have done there. Yeah, then nobody would have read it. That's the problem <laughs> with long books. Trade off. Yeah, it's not neglected in all Christian spheres, but I would say in terms of the evangelical circles that I mainly run around in, it is more neglected. And so, just to be clear, in terms of where it's neglected, <laughs> uh, there are many church traditions that don't neglect it, but it seems like, it, especially in uh, the evangelical circles that we are both in, the cross and the resurrection seem to get kind of the game time and the play time. Yep. And so the ascension ends up being somewhat after, of an afterthought. So we, th- we thought that title did capture the first chapter. I kind of went through why it's neglected and why we should pay attention to it. So we thought yep. that subtitle really gets the people going. <laughs> that's all it really it does nobody knows what it means but it's provocative that's right <laughs> you've been listening to too much kanye west uh i don't listen to kanye west i i, I boycott kanye west and his uh and his taking advantage of christians who want to spend their money on his albums so uh see that's a hot take that i just i don't need to be in front of a mic for hot takes like that you can right, so that so explain uh explain uh why you do think i mean i think you're i think you are right even though i'm giving you a hard time you know i think the ascension you're right cross resurrection uh, and then there's sort of the jump to the second coming, you That's know, right. at best. So where does the ascension uh, fit into all of this? Why is it so crucial? What's sort of just some a basic thesis for why we need to make sure we're including this uh, in these conversations about the gospel? Yeah. So one of the reasons I th- it's neglected is because when we speak and the Bible speaks about the exaltation of Jesus, it's it's speaking about his resurrection, ascension, se- session, and physical return. All of those sometimes are lumped together. But many times when we think of it, we only think of kind of the bookends of that, his resurrection and then physical return. And one of the reasons why it's neglected is it's kind of an odd doctrine or event in terms of the implications aren't as clear, especially as the New Testament narrates it. So, the resurrection just makes sense because Jesus died and now his body is raised from the dead. He receives the new spiritual body, um, not in terms of non-physical, but in terms of 1 Corinthians 15. And uh, like he's back on earth with his disciples and everything's good. And everyone's like, hallelujah, he's back. Like the Messiah, this is the Messiah. But then when he leaves, the even the apostles look into heaven and it seems like they're kind of wondering what to do until the angels come down and say, hey, stop looking to heaven. It's time to get to work. And then... Um, they're supposed to go into all nations after that. They received the commission right before. So, the ascension, as Christ goes into the sky and leaves, I think for a lot of us and a lot of people in the church, we just honestly wonder, why is that good news? Like, why is it good news that he left? It seems like if being with him bodily is the best end state, which we know that that is the case in the new heavens and new earth, we will be with Jesus Christ at the messianic banquet, etc., etc. And we look back on the New Testament and we see the disciples, how they walked around with Jesus. And we're always trying to think about like, what would it be like to be with Jesus Christ like himself? And then you kind of have that middle piece of, well, he left. And we do know 
that it's for our advantage that he goes away because he says that in John sixteen seven. But we don't always know exactly why that's for our advantage. So uh, really what I wanted to do through this book is just tease out some of the implications. Why is it important that he ascended? Kind of put it back into our doctrine of Christ uh, because it's such a key moment and we are living in between that time where Christ has come. We look back on his life and we look forward to his return, but he still acts now in heaven. He's still ruling and reigning. He's not just sitting at the right hand of the Father doing nothing. He's actually still acting. He's actually still working. And so the way I looked at it was through his work in terms of his the full range of his work as prophet, priest, and king, because I think that gives a nice summary of kind of his vocation. You could add sage in there as well, but just to keep it simple and to keep the Trinitarian threeness going, you know, prophet, priest, and king. And that's not, you know, that's uh, through church history, people, there's no clear like verse that speaks of prophet, priest, and king necessarily that I can think of. But through church history, that has been kind of a, a more famous way of thinking of Christ's messianic vocation. So, I, yeah, now I can't remember what your question was, but hopefully I got to some of it. Yeah, you got to some of it. It was, it was good enough. <laughs> it was okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so so tie that together a little bit of, you know, so sometimes I'll use a phrase like, you know, if Jesus died on the cross and didn't raise again, then he'd just be a dead prophet and it would be, you know, no help to us, right? Uh, but at the same time, if he resurrected and then just walked around on earth for another 40 years and died uh, again, or just kept walking around and he was still here, I don't know, you know, whatever, whatever the implications of that would be, um, why was it necessary for him to ascend in right. the sort of, in his work? How would yeah, you yeah, that's great. That? Yeah, because I think, again, like we said, the resurrection makes sense, but why, why did he need to ascend? If he didn't ascend, the, the ascension, let's put it positively, the ascension is the confirmation, the authorization, the endorsement of Jesus' work. So, in many ways, it seems that the New Testament authors, the apostles specifically, are speaking about Jesus as Messiah and Lord because of a double vindication. The double vindication is both... Um, he conquered death and he was exalted. And so the exaltation of Christ to the heavens is the father putting his stamp of approval upon him and saying, you have done all that is necessary at this time upon the earth. So um, Murray Harris, and I've said this line a lot, but Murray Harris distinguished between the resurrection and ascension this way. He said the resurrection means that Jesus lives in that forever. The ascension means that he reigns in that forever. And so you can have him living forever, which is good, but the ascension means he's reigning now over heaven and earth as the Messiah and Lord. And so there's a, you, you think of the end of Matthew when he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Um, that language comes from Daniel 7, which I think what Matthew is doing is actually including the ascension in that kind of phrase, if that makes sense. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me actually as he ascended. And because Matthew doesn't narrate it, he kind of puts it there just at the end before the disciples are sent out. Because it's very clear in Daniel 7 that it's the son of man, the human one, who receives authority over all kingdoms as he ascends with the clouds of the heavens to the Ancient of Days. So that movement, I've done a lot of work in the past on spatial movement, that spatial movement of Christ is actually key to understanding that he has been, exalt, has been exalted as the king, as the king. So it's, it's, it's part of the vindication, the resurrection is the vindication, but the ascension is also the vindication of Christ. 
Yeah, I think that that's helpful too when you frame it with a Daniel 7, Son of Man, because you do have the sort of uh, the human who has been uh, accepted by the Ancient of Days or has been received by the Ancient of Days, who also has the sort of divinity to him because he's in the heavens and sort of the authority that's been given to him. Um, And Matthew seems to be playing on that. And that's, I think that's crucial with the Ascension as well, right? Because when we think about um, how the New Testament authors are not only talking about Jesus, but even how they came to believe that Jesus is who he said he is, is all of these events together, right? So That's it's, right. It's, it's all, so they're expecting, almost expecting a messianic ascension in order to say, not only did he die, not only was he the suffering servant or whatever, not only did he raise, uh, not only has he been enthroned or whatever, you know, this ascension is the kind of this enthronement and that is part of what the Messiah is supposed to do. That's right. And going back to Daniel 7, I love that text because if you remember in Daniel 7, there's all of these beasts that arise and there are these different kingdoms. So, there's these human kings and kingdoms that are arising, Greece and Rome and so forth and so on, however you interpret the beasts. But uh, what what's going on there is that they're not worthy to inherit the kingdom. Yeah. Because they're beastly. Like, that's the exact point that Daniel's making. You look at these and he's, I mean, this is apocalyptic literature. He's pulling back the curtain and saying, well, what these kingdoms are, are deformed images of themselves because they followed the, the, the pathway of sin and destruction. And there's one who always followed the will of the Father. And therefore, he looks at the God-man and says, you have done all that was meant to be done by Adam by Israel, et cetera, et cetera, and therefore I will glorify you because of what you've done. So, one of the things actually that um, my supervisor taught me is when you find something that you get excited about, the danger is to make everything about that. Sure. But the mark of actually maturity and thinking through things is to say, no, just because I'm rediscovering this or I'm seeing this and, and thinking it's really important, it actually, what it should do is lift up the other things around it rather than saying it denigrates the things around it, the other doctrines or the other events around it. So, many times I've seen people say, well, we always talk about Jesus's death. And so, we never talk about his life, but his life is actually more important than his death. And I want to be like, well, maybe not more important, but it's certainly part of that kind of complete picture, as you said. And so, one of the things that I had to come to in in my own study is as you begin to see like a doctrine like this or an event like this is so central, you want to make it central to everything in terms of like, the other ones start to lower in your estimation, but rather what I had to come around to is that the ascension actually uh, affirms the incarnation. The ascension actually brings our eyes back to the cross. The ascension actually connects with the resurrection. The ascension actually, as we know in Acts, points to Jesus's physical return to the earth. And so, I think good theology that's what's going to do as you understand one piece of Christ's work or one piece of systematic theology better it's not going to denigrate other things but it actually it actually brings more clarity to those as you bring all those things together yeah so what you're saying is that when we uh, have all these gospel debates between the uh, you know the uh, gospel of allegiance and that you're not going to come out with a book that you know gospel is the ascension or the uh, ascension of the gospel or you're not going to do anything like that no, I'm not planning on it, no. But I, I do think it's important for our gospel message to speak about the ascension. Like you said at the beginning, what if Jesus didn't ascend? Is that, well, th- then his work is not confirmed by the Father. And so, if he stayed on the earth just in the resurrection, Daniel 7 just doesn't happen. Neither does actually Psalm 2 or Psalm 110.1. 1. 
which are actually like the the most I would say some of the most or the most important texts in the Old Testament in terms of kind of messianic predictions. Yeah. These are the texts that are quoted from again and again and again. And so certainly the New Testament authors see the resurrection and the ascension tied together. But they also distinguish between the two. You think about um, at the end of John, I think it is, when Mary's clinging to Jesus and he says, don't cling to me because I, I have to ascend to the Father. So, very clearly there he's seen, okay, the resurrection and the ascension are different. And by the fact that there's 40 days in between uh, in terms of his teaching on the kingdom, you read that at the beginning of Acts. So, the fact that you have different narrations of these events uh, on obvious, in Acts 2, you have Peter uh, very clearly distinguishing between the resurrection and the ascension. And so, in their, in their minds, you can distinguish these two, but they are part, I like the language, of a singular script. They're part of a singular script of Christ's work. Yeah, I even think about, you know, um, just how the, you talk about the New Testament, how it's played out. You know, you have that now that he is ascended, he is at the right hand of the Father, and you see, obviously, Stephen sees this vision. That's you go, right. you know, to the work that, that, that I've been working through in Revelation, the Son of Man who is in the heavens, who's on, who is on the throne with these creatures worshiping him, the angels worship. Like, you don't get any of that without the ascension. That's right. You, so. you don't have a, I mean, maybe this is overstating, you don't have a New Testament if you don't have the ascension, right? <laughs> you don't a, have, it's different, that's for it, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it is, but they seem to think that the ascension was integral integral to his work like it yeah. it there is no messianic lord and messiah it, without it and so it, it is central i mean you can say that about any of those right if without the incarnation we have no new testament without the resurrection we don't we don't have it with any of them but i would just say it's it's also true of the ascension yeah and not always talked about as 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 important that's yeah. right that's right. Yeah, and I think and there is even the 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 sense and acts of, you know, he he well in John he tells them, you know, don't be sad when I go away. I have to go away, but I'm going to send you a comforter. That's right. And he doesn't send them the comforter. The the Holy Spirit doesn't come in Acts 2 until he's ascended. So we don't get the Holy Spirit until that happens either. So. That's right. And there's a very clear narrative pattern of giving them the commission and then him ascending and then they choose the 12th uh, apostle or disciple, and yeah. then the Spirit comes. And I, that it's very clear in the New Testament theologically that the Father and the Son are bestowing the Spirit, that he's, it's almost like releasing the Spirit upon the earth because of his vindicating work. And I, if you think of it again in terms of heaven and earth, he pierced that barrier between those two realms as the God-man and then bestowed the Spirit that he had with him on the earth to his followers so that they could do the same works that he did. And that's where you get um, that really, I mean, this is a really tough text and, and people think different things about it. But um, John, I'm trying to remember the reference right now, John 16, no, not John, John 14, 12. Um, let me just read it really quick. John 14, 12, when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these he will do because I am going to the Father. Mm -hmm. And so, I've always read that and I'm like, greater works than these he will do because I'm going to the Father. Well, how can we do greater works than him? Well, I, we can do greater works in the sense that the Spirit is now giving to, given to his entire body yeah. who can spread through the whole earth. Jesus traveled a very minimal amount. He was on a very small piece of land because in one sense, he was limited by his physical body. But now his, his body, the church, has the same spirit who goes out and does the works that he does in a greater sense in terms of 
there's the works of Christ going on in China right now, in South America, in, in, you know, like in all, all the continents. Yeah. The, the, the Spirit is working through His people. And, and I also think we want to say it's greater in terms of the salvation historical placement of it as well, that we are, we are post-Jesus's life, death, resurrection, ascension. And so there's a sense in which we look back on that and we do greater works because we see that he has been confirmed in his authority. Yeah, that's good. Um, so uh, this this is almost to me uh, like the did Adam have a belly button type question, but I think mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a helpful question to ask you because you've done so much work on the sort of spatial element of things that are happening in the gospel. So, yeah, I mean, it seems pretty clear. Uh, the, the bare reading is he he literally floats into the sky out of their view. Yeah. Um, but there is a sense in which uh, the heavens are the sky, right? And, yeah. But he's also gone kind of behind the veil, right? He's sort of gone into the spiritual realm, for lack of a better word. And so, That's like, right. when, I, when I talk about Revelation, it's, it's not that, like, literally, necessarily, that the sky itself is, is coming open, but rather the veil has been lifted and he now sees everything going on behind. Like this stuff that's happening in our face, but we can't see it. So right. how do you talk through that? How do you think through just that kind of practical element of like, what, what is the... Where did he go? Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and, what is, and what is, even what is the author trying to say? Like when he says yeah. that he's going up, I mean, clearly he's saying right. he's going up to the Father, but is there more, more there than that? Certainly. And so you just basically asked me, where is heaven? Which I'm <laughs> yeah. going to give you, you the... Go. Let me give you the longitude and latitude right now in terms of the galaxy, where it is. No. Well, if it's... Uh, uh, I, I know that the Mormons say that the the uh, Garden of Eden will be in Missouri, so you're at least... <laughs> you're working on that one at least. So. Perfect. I'm in the right place. <laughs> It'll probably be in this podcast studio I'm in right now, so mm-hmm. I'm at the perfect place. Yeah, so that's a great question. And, and you know, people have struggled with that for a long time because... Uh, the Bible doesn't like say exactly like what happened after he disappeared behind the clouds, which just side note, the clouds, I think brings the priestly imagery in there as well yeah. as you think about going into the clouds. So uh, the way that I like to think about it is, is this way. Number one, we don't want to deny the physicality of Jesus in all of this, just kind of first point, because I think as the next things I'm going to say, you're going to say, well, now you're getting all spiritual and you're not getting physical. Jesus ascended in his bodily state, and he still has a body. Now, it is a, it is a different sort of body that can exist, I think, beyond our com- comprehension in different realms now. Yeah. And so, just go read 1 Corinthians 15, there's a body from the dust, and there's a body from heaven, and he has the new body. And so, yeah. one author... And it's, all a, and it's all a precursor to new creation when we are, when there's no distinction. So yeah. that, That's right. That's right. And one author put it this way, and I liked it, the, the dust of the earth is on the throne room of heaven. In other words, yeah. Jesus went up as a Galilean man, right? And and he was a dusty man, and that, that dust came up with him. Now, yeah. so, so then, we start there and say he, he still has a physical body. But we also need to think of space not just in terms of like outer space, because even in my book, I said, what did he like grab Neil Armstrong's spacesuit? Like as he got up there, like what, you know, like obviously scientists would be like, after you get out of the atmosphere, like it's not going to go well for you, right? (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) So uh, I think in the Bible, what's happening is they, they thought, and actually you can read the history of this in my dissertation if you want to, but as Newton and Galileo began to think, uh, as we began to think about outside of our universe, outside of our galaxy, started understanding more scientifically about the stars, we started to think about space in a more scientific, material way. And before that time, not that it was a better understanding of space, but it was just a different understanding, they thought of space in a relational way. And so, as 
someone ascends to a throne, that there's a spatial movement there in terms of exaltation. And so I, I think as the New Testament is presenting what happened to Jesus, they're not telling you where he went. They're telling you that he, well, they tell you where he went in terms of the heavens, but not like a physical location. They're, they're telling you that he is being exalted in the raising up. So it's, it's, a, it's a relational movement that he is going to the Father. They're trying to communicate more relationally than scientifically what happened. And so in that sense, the heavens where he is now are both, I think we need to say, beyond our understanding of space and time. And we have to acknowledge that he still has a body right now. And so it must be a, it must be a place in some sense. But what in what sense? I, I don't I don't think we have the answers to that. And so I I don't think we need to ask the questions, did he have a spacesuit? What happened? Right. It, it's they're communicating something different. And it a lot of times when you read the Bible, it the questions you ask determine the, the answers you get. And I think these are fine questions to ask because it's it's confusing. But as you said to your students in terms of revelation, this is actually communicating a theology. They're not trying to give a scientific scientific world like, uh, okay, this is what happened as he got out of the atmosphere and this is where he went. You can't go and find Jesus in, in, yeah, yeah, <laughs> in the right. same sense, right? It's not like we can travel far enough to find Jesus. Yeah. So kind of keeping those two things in tension, that's, that's how I like to think through it. And I know that's not maybe satisfactory to everyone, but the Bible really doesn't give us answers to some of those questions. Yeah, but it is good. I think, you know, some of the theological themes, like you said, are important. There's the, there's the physicality of it. You don't want to turn Gnostic, and, and now it's just kind of like this uh, mirage. Uh, but also, there is the sense in which, yeah, it's this precursor to new creation. It's this sort of heaven and earth coming together. It, it's, a, it's an aspect of his incarnation. Um, it's an aspect of the fact that God wanted Adam and Eve to have bodies and souls, and he still wants us to have bodies and souls, and Jesus is the true body and soul or whatever. That's right. Um, and there so is really a higher, theologically. Yeah. And there is a higher realm that he then comes, like when he returns, he comes on the clouds again. They say yep. he's going to come in the same way. So I really think he's going to come down through the clouds in a s- symbolic and real way. Like yep. I'm not, you know what I mean? It's both and at the same time, yep. symbolic and real way saying the king of heaven and earth is coming to reclaim the earth and make it a good place again. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's helpful because, yeah, when I say uh, not, he's maybe not literally the sky is being roped open. In some sense, yes, literally the sky is being roped open. Literally, he is coming down on it, but it's so much more than that. You know, we yes. sort of, yeah, again, you sort of think of, uh, you know, well, if you have a resurrection body, I guess you can just float to Mars and not die. It's like, that's not actually what's going on here. <laughs> you just have to read the last chapter of um, C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle or the last two chapters. He yep. gives this great, like, kind of symbolic, but understandable presentation of like somehow people continents away you can see them and they're next to you while they're also far away like it's it's that kind of idea that it just goes beyond our understanding yeah well i was i was jockeying for a mansion closer to gods than others in the new creation but apparently that's not what you think is going to happen so well based on uh, your podcast making it spotify you might get one Ooh, that's fair. That's a fair point. I just gotta knock. A, I gotta knock a Tim Tebow out of the way. That's yeah, right. I'm sure, I'm sure, he's out there. And Kirk Cousins, according to you. Kirk Cousins, yeah. <laughs> All right. So, um, so let's talk about. You have an Acts commentary coming out, uh, of which I am the editor of the series, the Christian Standard Commentary. Um, You're and, done reading it, right, Brandon? Uh, actually, funny. While we were recording this, I got the uh, pr- I got the copy edited uh, proof yes. pack while 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 we were talking. So right. Um, yeah, you're so checking it's, it's, your email while I'm talking. That's encouraging. Yes, I, I absolutely am. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, I already know everything you're going to say, so I don't need to listen. 
So I'm this not here to learn. Scripted. I'm just here to be. This a is conduit. all scripted. I already <laughs> sent him all the answers. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, which is which explains how we had to redo the whole first part of the. Uh, of the <laughs> that's right. Thanks, Brian. Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so your axe commentary that I that I uh, still have the power to not release, uh, according to how nice you are to me at the rest of this podcast. Um, what uh, what are some things? I mean, I, yeah, I read the the first proof of it. There's definitely a a much more um, theological uh, interpretation bent to it than probably a lot of others that I've seen. Uh, maybe all the others I've seen, which is super helpful. So just talk through sort of what was some of the the things that you think you're adding to the discussion, and then some of just the underlying themes and structures and method that you're doing as you're as you're reading through the book of acts yeah i can't remember the book at all so i don't have anything to say <laughs> i'm now just thinking about the ascension <laughs> i'll say a few things about it although my mind is totally on the ascension right now i need to get your edits back and start thinking about acts again so uh many great commentaries on acts exist most of them fall under the more historical uh, when did, how far did Paul travel? When did this happen? What date? Who was with him? So forth and so on. Who is the we? Uh, where is Luke involved? Where is he not involved? How did he understand these things? How did he hear these private conversations that people say they go in the back room and talk about this? Like, how did Luke get that information? Which are really interesting questions. Other commentaries focus a little bit more on exegetical points. And so, what this series and this commentary is trying to do is look more at the theology, and especially I focused on kind of biblical theological connections from the Old Testament and combine that with literary structure. So, I think Acts, Luke in Acts is doing something specific with his literary structure, and I think it's pretty clear from Acts 1-8 that there's that geographical push. But we're, we're not just thinking geography here. And one of the things that I, we are thinking theology. And so what I tried to press into continually, and we're talking about now, is, you know, even though there's only three verses of the Ascension mentioned in Acts 1, 9 through 11, the Ascension ends up being the most important journey in all of Acts. We could put it that way. Because it's only because he journeyed to heaven that they can journey to the ends of the earth. Mm -hmm. So what I tried to do in the commentary, if we're just kind of pitching back to the ascension here, is say, as Jesus appears to Saul, as he appears to Stephen, as the spirit of Jesus leads Paul um, into Macedonia, into Greece, that suddenly Jesus is showing he's still actually very active in this narrative. And so the way that Luke sets up his narrative, especially in Acts 1 through 2, sets the theology for the rest of the book. And so, rather than dropping Ascension because he's not talking about it, I just kind of talk about it the whole time because I think it is part of the foundation of the narrative itself. The, the other thing that I, I think is unique about this commentary that people uh, might notice is that especially in Acts 1 through 7, I focus on the temple theme. I think there's a distinct temple theme going on, and that starts, I mean, it starts before this, but uh, it starts at the ascension with Jesus becoming the priest, and then the spirit is given to them, and they become the new temple. And then Peter goes into the temple, and he heals someone. Actually, he's that's wrong. He's right outside the temple, and he brings the lame man into the temple. And so, there's kind of this new temple theme, and then who opposes them? It's the temple leaders. And so, this whole section, Acts 1 through 7, as you go through it, there's this huge temple theme in terms of the location and what they're doing. And many times the questions that have been asked about Acts 1 through 7 have, again, dropped the temple theme because 
you see the temple theme in Pentecost, but people don't carry it forward. So really, a big part of my commentary is trying to see the theology at the beginning and then see how Luke continues to carry that theology out, even without mentioning it explicitly. Because I think he's setting you up in terms of the narrative and saying, this is how I want you to read, now carry that through. And then maybe the final comment I'd make is that um, because the history has been focused on so much, I don't think we've read some of that history um, as symbolically as we should. And I think the symbolism and the history can ultimately come together because some people hear that and be like, oh, you're saying it didn't happen. No, so here's an example. The crossing of the sea in Acts 27, I really, before I came to that, I was like, what am I going to do with this massive section where he spends so many verses on Paul crossing the sea and he's like, they tied up the boat and they threw stuff overboard and the wind came and they stopped here at this port and they picked up some people at this port and they went over here and they went over there. And it honestly to us seems like what in the world, like Luke, you, you have like scroll space to do something (laughs) with. And you're talking about like this long journey, but I think this is a really important theological point that Paul is actually conquering the Greek sea as he goes across the sea that Yahweh is showing as Jesus walked over the waters that Paul now and his followers can almost walk through the waters despite the danger and come through. And there's a very real sense in which the people on the boat with Paul are saved. Actually, the word sozo is used, and we take it that they were rescued. That's most of the English translation, because that can be translated as rescued. But I think Luke is actually doing something with his narrative and saying that as Paul is ministering to these Gentiles, they are in, in many ways being saved through his ministry. And so, that's more where I'm looking towards the symbolism and, and trying to follow, like, what is Luke doing with this whole narrative? I think he's moving in co-centric circles out and out and out from Jerusalem. And the furthest people that he can get to is Malta, the barbarians, and then Rome. And so, he's still following that train of thought as he goes into Acts 27 and 28. But a lot of people, when they come to Acts 27, just kind of are like, ah, this is just a nice long journey because that's what they did in that day. They told car chase scenes as boat scenes and people would think it's really exciting. So, I want to ask questions of that narrative. And this is what I've done through the whole thing. Like, why? Why put this in here? Based on the theology that you've already established, why put that in there? And some people will say, well, you're reading too much into it. But I don't, based on the way Luke has set it up, I don't think that is reading too much into it. I think he set us up to read that narrative in a more, again, symbolic way, because every place that Paul goes is uniquely he's uniquely spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. And although it looks very different and no actually message is recorded in Acts 27 as he travels through the sea, you just have to follow the narrative that he's doing something different with the narrative there. So there's a few examples of what I'm doing. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, You know, one of the things I've seen pretty often is that the uh, Council of Jerusalem is sort of one of the big linchpins turning points in the book. You know, you kind of have... Uh, they decide what to do with the Gentiles, and then Paul is off to Gentile ministry. So, um, were there any kind of insights there on top of just sort of the standard, you know, uh, reading of that, like I just laid out, that you found helpful or uh, unique uh, about the Council of Jerusalem and how that all went down? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, one of the things that struck me when I, I studied this again is that um, in many ways the Gentile question had already been decided with Cornelius. The question in the Jerusalem Council was how they would come in. 
did they need to be circumcised? So I think there's a two-point structure to Acts that Cornelius, Peter has already seen, Gentiles can come in. But then what we forget is that they had to work through the details. It's like an administration, right? You, you, a big decision happens, and then you're kind of running around being like, well, how's this going to actually work out? Boots on the ground. And I think in many ways, that's what's going on in the church. So Cornelius comes in, then Paul goes out for mission, and then he comes back and people are like, wait a second, so are they following the Torah? Uh, how, how are they coming into the Jewish kind of fold in, in, or, or God's people? Because in the past, this is the only way that we've come in. It's by, it's by following the law. And then, so what has to happen is a council has to happen and say, okay, how do we deal with this? So I think in my mind, just distinguishing those two events in terms of the acceptance of the Gentiles already happened in Acts 10 with Cornelius and 11. And then how they come in, do they need to be circumcised? And they say, no, is Acts 15. Yeah, that's good. Um, that's a good way to frame it because, yeah, you're right. The, the, the question's already answered. And then, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, th- I've read a lot of things too that sort of talk about, you know, the idea that um, Christianity was still pretty Jewish uh, all the way up until at least this point, if not later. Um, so what are some things that you see there, even through the book of Acts, uh, you know, the book of Acts is sort of like this underlying historical narrative in some sense of the letters and the things that's Paul's right. doing. And, that's right. Um, so how do you see that sort of playing together there, sort of the, the quote unquote Jewishness yeah. of Christianity and, you know, Paul's arguments about circumcision or about what to eat and what not to eat. Um, you have the, the blood strangled, you know, uh, that yeah. whole thing in Acts. Um, so how does some of that stuff play out through the book of Acts and then sort of how that's picked up in the epistles in the new Testament? Yeah, certainly. I mean, that's a very deep question, but let me just say one thing that uh, really impressed me studying through this is I think we typically have a Galatians and Romans theology when we come to Acts. Um, Maybe because as Protestants, we just know those better. And so, we assume something about the law coming to Acts. But what struck me in reading through Acts is the fact that Paul continues to follow the Jewish law largely as he goes to different places. Mm -hmm. And so, he seems completely comfortable as a Jew following most of the traditions. He takes a Nazarite vow. Uh, He actually cleanses himself before he goes into the temple. Now, why he did that, there's some questions like, is he just playing the game so he doesn't get in trouble? Ultimately, it doesn't work. But he has no problem with actually cleansing himself in the Jewish way. And so, he actually goes through many of the things that Jews would continue to do. And many people now argue he just continued being a Jew. That what happened in Acts 15 was saying, Gentiles, you don't have to take on this Jewishness. But Jews can still follow those things because actually in the Acts 15, it doesn't say Jews have to stop doing those things. I think that's one thing that we maybe forget, um, like post after all this history, we're like, oh yeah, nobody had to be circumcised. That was great. I think Jews were still circumcised. Some people are arguing that actually they should still be circumcised. I need, I need to think through all of that more. But Paul is very clear. So, so here's what I'm getting at. We need to balance Paul, the view of Paul from Galatians to Acts. He's not completely anti-law. He's only anti-law if they're saying you must do this to be saved. And that's very clear with someone like Timothy, who he says, you need to go be circumcised so you can minister to these people. How can, how can he do those sort of things according to Galatians? How can he submit? How can, he's not under the law anymore. They can't be under the law. Well, you need to balance. This is a good canonical reading. You need to balance your Romans and Galatians with your Acts and make sure that you understand that Galatians and Romans are speaking to a specific situation. And in many ways, Acts is giving you a more broad brush picture of what's happening in their early church. Yeah, it's helpful. That's that was what I start was thinking right there at the end when you said sort of the situations because there is an a, occasional aspect to what Paul is doing, 
And even when I was I was teaching on the the old and new perspective uh, again, really for the first time in a while, uh, and I was still thinking through, you know, how much of that debate is just which passages you want to emphasize, and then say this is how all Jews thought. And it's like, well, actually, I think Paul is talking to Jews who think this way, yeah. and then maybe Jews who thought that way, um, and maybe some of what you're saying there sort of helps. Um, smooth out some of those rough edges of the Pauline debate. That's right. I think you're right there. Yeah. Well, that was good. There was, there was no follow-up there. Just the, my, my answer was... Some, my there was no was question some. there, Brandon. It was a rhetorical question. It was a, it was a question without a question mark. No, I think, no, but I think what you said was helpful to set that up. So. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> I guess if nothing else, we're, if nothing else I'm going to enjoy talking to you on the podcast, even if, uh, even if nobody else is helped by it. That's right. I'm going to just go on podcasts now. And if people don't ask questions, I'm just going to say, I agree. <laughs> well, it makes it, it makes it really comfortable and easy for the podcast host. For the end of your, that, so. I know that as a podcast host. I'm like, yeah, I didn't ask a question there. <laughs> well, if I, did, if I didn't know you better, I would have just played it off. But uh, I feel like I, uh, I had to troll you about it. I, I, I know. I know. Go for it. You can either cut this or keep it in. You know, it might, it might be fun for the crowds, the crowds that listen. Yeah, it's all staying. You know, I've got I've got people that have certain expectations for for uh, what I do on this worldwide podcast, and I got to make sure that that uh, I give the people what they want. So. You got to catch up to Joe Rogan. Come on, that's right. Yep, yeah. Well, we're not gonna. Uh, hopefully, we won't start any controversies like he does. It won't be that bad. But all right. So, uh, what else do you have coming? What are some other things that you're working on? What do you expect? Maybe the next year or two. I'm sure you've got some uh, some other things on the on the docket. Yeah, so I'm working on a book that is a visual overview of the New Testament with Moody Press. And so what we're going to do is we're going to give a visual outline of each book of the New Testament on one page, and then I'm going to summarize it on following pages with little icons. Going to be a little more minimalistic than like Bible Project. And so our hope for that project is that pastors, teachers who want to get a good kind of what's the what's this book about and how is it structured can come to this book and get a pretty quick understanding of the flow of it. Now, of course, you can argue for different structures. I'm just going to give one of them that I think helps enlighten the reading. We're going to give little themes up, up at the top, but it's been a really fun project because I've been working with artists and we've got to think through like, okay, in um, Galatians 1 and 2 or 1, 1 through 18, what image do we want to represent that? And that's a whole new learning curve for me, like one image to represent uh, a certain section. We did it for Acts actually as well. And so uh, the other thing I'm working on with Crossway is actually a theology of Acts. So it's a New Testament biblical theology kind of based on some of my work I'm doing with you guys. And uh, it's looking at the theological themes of Acts through kind of a narratival pattern. So those are the two that should be, uh, maybe those might come out maybe next summer or a little bit after that. So I thought the Acts commentary was the theology of Acts. Now you're saying you also are writing a theology of Acts. I have two theology of Acts, <laughs> one shorter and one longer. There you go. That's perfect. Yeah. All right. Well, Patrick, thanks so much for coming on. Enjoyed it as always. Uh, everybody go pick up his Ascension book. I think it's, I mean, it's it's on Amazon for not very much and it's not very big, but I think it's, it is super, super helpful. Uh, like you said, you're not exaggerating the Ascension as the only thing, uh, even though uh, as we talked about your Acts commentary, you kept coming back to it, but you definitely just, it's really helpful. Yeah. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. <laughs>